Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter. Please support this podcast by subscribing for free at your favorite podcast platform. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and Pandora. If you are a super fan and would like to support the show in a more formal way, you can do so at anchor.fm forward slash ACONS, A-A-C-O-N-S, forward slash support with our thanks. Our guest today is Dr. Wilford Riley, an associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University and the author of the books Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, Hate Crime Hoax, and The $50 Million Question. He has published pieces in Academic Questions, Commentary, and Quillette, and a number of other journals and magazines. Welcome to the show, Will. Great, great to be on the show. You apparently left a successful career in business for a career in academia. Why so? Well, I mean, to some extent, it was just uh, kind of the finalization of the goal. So I'm not a huge fan of the taste of ramen noodles. And when I was in <laughs> grad school, I had a range of jobs pretty much the entire time. And they were all pretty interesting city kid jobs. I mean, at one point I worked as a canvas manager for the fund for the public interest. So there are these massive, almost mercenary organizations that hire kind of the young athletes that you see in cities standing on street corners asking questions like, hey, do you have a minute for gay marriage or, you know, on the right side of things like to save the American wild duck? None of those people are volunteers. They're all brought onto the scene by large organized groups. Uh, on average, I'd say they make 15 to 18 bucks an hour. And I was at the boss level, although the lowest uh, boss level for one of those groups for a couple of years and had really a you know fascinating series of experiences. Our office was on the south side of Chicago. We'd travel around to these hostile areas of the country fundraising for mostly these radical causes. I didn't even agree with all of them, but it was an interesting uh, kind of formative experience. You had to learn some game. Uh, you got to encounter your countrymen. I moved from there to the North American headquarters for uh, Marcus Evans. It's a large British company known for organizing sort of elite business events. And uh, their target market, what distinguishes them is that their target market is entirely CEOs. So the company's clients are, for example, the CEOs of Boeing would come to mind or Walmart, major Fortune 500 players. And we would be sort of retained to bring the CEOs or the C-suite guys from lesser known companies to meet with them and pitch their products. So like LifeLock might be an example these sort of innovative new technologies, but that would still require kind of using all sorts of phone and computer tricks and getting into that company and pitching the guy who owned what was still a billion dollar company. It's a very trading floor environment. You had to wear a suit to work. You know, guys were you know constantly going into the bathroom and coming out a little more animated and your salary was nothing unless you closed a deal, in which case it was you know, $20,000 a month and so on down the line. So I, I did that for a little bit and actually it was probably could have stayed on in that job permanently. I mean, there were people that went on to England and Tokyo in that role. And had I wanted to go more into just the actual security sales side of things, I mean, Goldman Sachs was down the block. The Chicago Merck, the Mercantile Exchange was 
two blocks away. I mean, other than Wall Street, that was kind of the heart of this globally. I mean, other Shanghai maybe as well. But um, I was doing these things for a reason, which was that I wanted to finish my PhD. And in 2015, I actually did. I sent the dissertation in and it was good enough that it actually ended up becoming my first book. And so I graduated, the full panel signed off and I still had a job at that time. But the question was, well, do you want to go on being sort of a corporate executive or do you want to actually work in academia, which is the point of the PhD, the degree I'd been working toward for seven years or whatever it was. And so I at very least decided to send in applications to all of these colleges. I mean, there's a there's a website, Academic Job Finder, like there is for everything else. So I applied to this whole um, mostly mid-range state universities. I mean, I'd gone to the University of Illinois and to Southern Illinois University, and you're usually targeting like a quarter level down. And I got responses from, you know, universities in Utah, Connecticut. And the most interesting one was Kentucky State, which is a good state university, but also a historically black college and located in Appalachia. So I thought there was a chance I might actually get to sort of help kids in both of those groups, like move people who were first or second generation students forward into law school and my profession and so on. And that's pretty much what ended up happening. I mean, they made an offer. It was quite a, quite a decent salary and I, I took the job. So that's how I moved from business to academia. Generally, if you get one of the, and this is something I would warn kind of the young men and women about, if you get one of these esoteric academic degrees, your career options are pretty limited. I mean, you're either going to stay on the old trading floor or you're going to go where they're hiring someone with a political science PhD. So, I mean, they're only, I mean, there may be 800 reputable political science departments nationally, and they've got five guys apiece. So unless someone dies, there aren't that many roles necessarily available. Um, I mean, in K-State's case, we had um, the the legendary Emmanuel Amadife, who's one of the better known Africanists in the country. He's from the motherland. And we wanted to create a tenure track line for someone who, although KSU is a historically black college, was a little more American focused. And I happened to be a black man who focused in America, who graduated with a PhD that year. And so they hired me. But it's, it's an iffy game. I mean, there are a whole bunch of graduate students that are working to, you know, make you the perfect cold brew at any given time. So, but that's what happened. I, I basically completed the degree, went out on the job market and, you know, not got lucky. Luck is the residue of skill and preparation, but was able to get hired in my first year, which is, which is always good. What a story. Uh, now, you once conducted an interesting exercise in which you asked a number of individuals how much they would be required to be paid in order to change a core characteristic, such as race, gender, orientation, or religion. What did your findings tell us about what characteristics people most value and specifically their views on race? Yeah, that, that's both my dissertation and my first book. And I mean, a, a glib but real way to put that is that when I did more uh, academic as versus public intellectual writing, and that's something I'm shifting back toward. I mean, myself and Bob Maranto have a pretty major article coming down the pipe. He's the lead author there, but myself, Bob Maranto, Pat Wolf. But um, one of the things that I did was, to some extent, disprove the claim of widespread white privilege. Um, didn't... In start off by intending to do that necessarily. But in 1992, a guy named Andrew Hacker asked a bunch of white guys 
And if you're familiar with America's big cities at all, he asked a bunch of white dudes in Queens. So I don't know how representative his sample was, <laughs> but how much money they would have to be paid to be black, um, given racism, given some of the issues in society at the time. And the average answer was $50 million. And this, along with uh, Peggy McIntosh's idea of the invisible knapsack of privileges, really was one of the baselines that created the idea of WPT, white privilege theory. It's the hacker question. America is so racist that the average black person would demand, or the average white person would demand tens of millions of dollars just to be black. And it struck me that Hacker hadn't necessarily proven anything. He's a good innovative scientist, but the experiment hadn't included any black people. So there, there's no counterexample. How did how did black Americans value racial togetherness or affirmative action or anything along those lines? So for my dissertation, I gathered together a group of several thousand people. I mean, it was more than 2000. It was a randomized survey through Carbondale, where the university is located, and through the surrounding area, which is essentially the St. Louis suburbs. And I asked them, you know, to the extent you think this question is realistic at all, how much money would you have to be paid to change your race, your sex, your sexual orientation, even your religious faith tradition in a scenario where this is hypothetically possible, where this could occur? And the results were not at all in line with what Hacker said. Uh, so whites did demand about $50 million to make the change. He, he wasn't lying. He did his experiment well. But blacks demanded more. I, if you want to use this as a metric of racism, African-Americans were more racist than whites. So were Asians. Um, so that that is just there. Those those were the results. I don't think that measures racism at all, uh, yeah. specifically older Asians. There's a lot of variance within the, the Asian community. But um, the... If you ask black subjects why they answered as they did, I mean, they gave very logical answers. Uh, I identify with elements of being black was, was sort of one. I just love who I am. Another was, you know, I think there are advantages on this side of the coin as well. Would I lose affirmative action benefits if I made the change or, you know, more humorously, would I become a worse athlete or a worse lover? I mean, there's a little <laughs> qualitative portion where people are allowed to respond and you know, guys on all sides were perhaps lightly making jokes, but also explaining quite sincerely why they why they made the decision they made. Um, so you didn't see what you call a statistically significant difference in willingness to change among groups. In fact, if anything, the difference was in the direction of increased minority unwillingness to change. So the this argument that famously, quote unquote, proved white privilege turned out not to prove much of anything because everyone said that they were unwilling to change themselves at the same level. What had been found was a deep attachment to race and to, to things like this faith rather than an attachment to whiteness. And I'll, I'll expand on this and say that this is the same problem with a lot of the things we see today, like white fragility. So um, the good Dr. Robin DeAngelo has said, and again, she's a competent social scientist. I have no doubt she's worked out her measures. I have no doubt she's, she's conducted some of these experiments. But she says that whites are extremely reluctant to talk about past white crimes. Whites get sensitive if you accuse them of being racist or physically soft or of being awkward around minorities. But it strikes me that that's obviously true because those are the weaknesses white people have. 
black people would have the same level of fragility if you approached us with a series of rude questions about crime or low test scores or inability to assimilate or something like that. So what you're finding is just that people don't like to be insulted by strangers. There's nothing unique to whites about any of these privileges or varieties of fragility or, or anything like that. So that, that was the first book. I also, by the way, I, I included some of this stuff just as an amusing sideline, but I find that people are attached. The, the pool here really is sort of middle-class Americans, if you look at who I surveyed, but people within that group are more attached to almost everything else than they are to race. Um, we tend to center a lot of these conversations around race, but for example, with the would you change your race question, a huge percentage of white and black men, I forget it offhand, I don't want to make it up, but I mean, 30, 40, um, said that they'd be willing to change their race and said things like many of my teammates are of a different race, who cares? Uh, in contrast, the percentage of men that said they'd be willing to change their sexual orientation was on the order of 1%. Um, the percentage of women that said they'd be willing to change their sex was uh, 2 or 3%. And although women said that they understood that men had certain benefits in society, they also said things like, well, they're, they're dumb, they're big, they're clumsy, they're often bad lovers. I mean, people were quite explicit about the flaws that they saw in other human groups. So it was an interesting project. I, I found that levels of racism don't seem to vary much, if at all, among racial groups, one. And two, that race isn't the thing people most value as versus their religion and faith in God or as versus yeah. who they're interested in sleeping with or as versus who they are sexually at a core level. So that was that was the first book. And I, I think it's it's still out there. Fifty million dollar question. And I, I think it's an interesting start in terms of unpacking whether a lot of these ideas mean anything, cultural appropriation, white fragility, so on down the line. Often, no, I would suspect. Those are some really cogent points. Uh, you know, when you talk about uh, being asked sensitive questions and insulting questions, uh, we see that all the time on the Akon's page. So, yeah, I, I can understand that absolutely. Now, as a right-leaning professor, you've expressed many views frowned upon uh, on many college campuses. One such view is that the Black Lives Matter movement uh, has not only failed to save lives by reducing the number of unjustifiable police shootings of citizens or even Black citizens, but instead BLM has actually led to an increase of Black fatal homicides. Can you expand upon that? Yeah, I don't I don't think this is very complicated in practice. I mean, this gets into the triple OG Tom Soul's idea of the vision of the anointed, that very often when you're looking at social policy, there really are two options as to what can happen when some trendy new policy is proposed. Um, so an example might be exactly what BLM proposed, pulling back the police in high crime areas because you think that doing this will increase public trust in the system or some such, and thus will reduce crime. Uh, and the first will be that the big brains in the universities are correct. They have far more knowledge than the compiled pool of wisdom that exists among all the, the wise mothers sitting on porches in those neighborhoods and all the deacons of the great churches in those areas and all the small black and Lebanese butchers that own successful businesses in those areas. They know 
what reality is. And they can tell these poor benighted fools what reality is. And so when they propose this new novel thing, crime's going to plunge. Uh, and the second is that the ordinary wisdom of the people is very often correct and crime's going to surge. And Sol wrote an entire book about this called The Vision of the Anointed, where he points out that these policy proposals that come out of the NGO sector or the collegiate sector and that seem to conflict with common sense are almost always wrong. Uh, he gives all these sort of almost funny examples like oral and anal sex education for eighth graders, um, the first round of police pullback, which you, I guess you'd call community policing in the 1960s different types of tax policy, welfare and the family. Some of these did some good, but the basic objective of the policy was almost never met because it so obviously didn't make sense. I think you see this now with the modern transgender movement in terms of the denial of what seems like obvious common sense to most people. But I mean, so BLM said what it said. It said that there's a massive problem with police murder of black people Pulling police back is going to reduce the murder problem and it's going to increase trust in police and it's going to decrease crime. So there are two claims here. One is that there's a massive problem with police murder of black people. And two is that we're going to see crime stay stable or decrease when the police pull back. So these are two testable hypotheses. And against these, the deplorables, if you will, would propose two other hypotheses. One is that there's almost certainly not a problem with mass police murder most police chiefs are either black or anti-racist white city kids by this point that wouldn't be tolerated. Um, if you unpack the numbers, you'd find that that would be part one. So we're not going to see a decrease in police homicides. And two, when you pull back the police in violent ghettos, no offense, you're going to see a lot more crime. So we, we tested these out over the past couple of years. And as usual, the benighted hypothesis was completely correct. So in terms of falling police fatalities, we really haven't seen that at all. We may have seen, the data's not yet in, a slight decrease in shootings of specifically unarmed black men. But I mean, if you look at the period between 2015 and 2021, I mean, in 2015, we saw 995 fatal police shootings of American citizens, about 250 of them black. And in 2021, we saw 1,051 fatal police shootings of American citizens, more than 200 of them black. So that's, that's what happens. We know this data. The Washington Post, which is not too far to the right of Lenin, keeps uh, a very well-done database that tracks every one of these shootings. So that's, that's what happened on Esri.1. Um, I mean, if you look certainly between 2015 and 2020, where we know all the cases... We haven't seen any dramatic decline in the shootings of people, uh, black people, unarmed people. There's a slight plunge last year, so we'll have to track that, see if that keeps going. But the flip side of that, if you look, so that's that's point one. The flip side of that, though, if you look at crime, is that we obviously have seen a massive, massive surge in crime. And sure, you know, OAN and Fox and so on can exaggerate this a little bit from the right, but the basic facts aren't in dispute. Uh, in 2020, we saw murders surge back over 20,000, which is the general bellwether for very high crime in the United States for the first time since 1994. And now at the start of Black Lives Matter, I know these numbers like the back of my hand, 2014, we had 14,164 murders. We were at a decade long low for murders. And then this movement started. People started calling for the police to pull back. 
The police did so. I mean, stops in some city declined by 42, 53 percent. And murders increased by almost 7,000 within a span of six or seven years. I mean, in New York City, you saw a 58% increase in murders. In Chicago, my hometown, you saw a 65% increase in murders. In Louisville, between 2019 and 2020, you saw a 79% increase in murders. So this happened all across the map. And I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that what you saw under BLM was... No dramatic decrease in police violence. Uh, oh, police violence overall increased. You could argue that it decreased maybe 10% among specifically unarmed black individuals on the one hand. And on the other hand, you saw murders surge by almost 10,000. And something that's rarely discussed here because it is so taboo. The only people I've seen touch on it are real brother brothers like Umar Johnson on the one hand and almost alt-right types like Steve Saylor on the other hand. But these murders are heavily concentrated just among black people because poor white and Hispanic communities, which have the potential for crime rates, at least on par with ours, as we know, reading, say, Italian-American history, they continue to enforce the law. So, I mean, we've seen this weird progression throughout the civil rights era, where at the beginning of it, black people were making up maybe 25 or 30 percent of the homicide offenders, which is what you'd expect. We're younger, more urban. We've experienced racism, so on. Now we're making up about 62% of all murderers in the United States. So there's this automatic association of a criminal with no longer an Italian, an Irishman, et cetera, just with a black guy, because two thirds of all murderers following BLM are black. So no, I, I don't think the movement accomplished much that's positive. And the real pity there, kind of last sentence, is that there actually is a positive pro-policing movement that, that could have grown out of this. Like, I think everyone agrees that there are bad cops. You know, after the killing of George Floyd, you saw really a city come together and within two days, all of the officers that were involved in that, and even that, by the way, wasn't what it was presented as in the media. I mean, drugs were involved very heavily. Not all of the cops involved participated in the death, so on. But nonetheless, I mean, obviously Chauvin was responsible for the direct fact of Floyd's death. And within a couple of days, you'd seen all those cops stripped of their badges. They were all facing criminal charges. Chauvin was in jail. But then instead of a conversation about getting rid of qualified immunity or what to do with a few rogue officers, Chauvin had 17 previous complaints, you started seeing rioting and this whole idiotic discussion about defunding the police and so forth. Yeah. And it's really from that point forward, it's from May of 2020 forward that you started seeing these sort of mostly white mobs burning black businesses. And you started seeing these substantial yeah. increases in the black crime rate. So no, I, I don't think any of that was a good thing for the black community. Well, and these engraved invitations, if you will, to come in and steal merchandise and loot. I mean, you that's it, it was born out of that where you saw cities like San Francisco and others where they uh, I think Dallas is another one where they said, you know, if you steal so much worth oh, yeah. of merchandise, it's not a prosecutable crime. It's like, come on in and just loot. So, I mean, it's an invitation to crime, if you will. So it's not so much just pulling back the police, but it's hamstringing them when actual crimes occur. And it's crazy. 
Yeah, I mean, it just did very briefly jump on that. I mean, in, in Texas, for example, I think the felony theft amount is $1,200. So, I mean, what that means in practice is that you can walk into a business and steal $1,190 worth of goods yeah. and walk out. Yeah. No one's going to stop you because, yeah. I mean, no one's going to. Now, in reality, in Texas, someone might just shoot you. I mean, I, yeah. I think it's, <laughs> I'm in Texas. Suburban <laughs> yeah, Dallas. I don't really know how much of a problem they have with this, but theoretically, in a lot of cities, Portland, where that's not going to happen. I mean, you you see exactly that. You see people yeah. walking into stores with hefty bags and gunny sacks and yeah. walking out with them absolutely full of other people's goods. And one thing that I will say about this, not to be insensitive, but like we hear a lot about food deserts. And by the way, people people talk that mess too in Appalachian high crime regions of Kentucky. You want to be sympathetic, but a food desert is essentially a high crime, low income area where no one wants to build a business. At a certain level, capitalism is totally amoral. Even if you think whites are racist, there are tons of successful black and Asian businessmen. We both know plenty. Yes. So if your area offers the potential for multiple successful stores to be opened, believe me, multiple successful stores will be open there. Even if you don't get McDonald's, you'll get McDowell's like in the famous old movie. You know, there, there will be profit making businesses there because capitalism is so amoral. If you go to the most barrio Latino neighborhoods, you'll see taco shops on every corner and so on. And you'll see the brothers of the owner kind of out in front protecting them because that business is going to be kept safe. A food desert occurs when that's not possible for whatever reason. When you have a combination of, say, left wing civic administration that would chase the brothers of the owner away with baseline high crime that would then prevent the business from surviving. And with the BLM riots, what you unfortunately saw was a lot more areas becoming food deserts. I mean, in Central City, Baltimore, there'd been massive investment planning where they, they built that flagship CVS that was about half a block long. I mean, they were building grocery stores. They were building Starbucks stores. They were making a lot of investments in, frankly, the hood, or at least the yeah. edges of the hood. And what you saw with the Freddie Gray riots was that all that stuff was set on fire. Like, yeah. th there's an image that really stands out, which is people dancing on burning cop cars in yes. front of the burning flagship CVS. And if there's if people understand that that's what's going to happen when they open up their lovely little store in your neighborhood, they're not going to do it. There's that's not exactly right. any atavistic hatred of blacks or down here of poor whites. It's just that's not that's not the move. That's not what you would do as a business person. And it's unfortunate that that impression of black people has been solidified by this, by the way. That's exactly right. I had this almost verbatim discussion with my cousin because he was like, you know, have you had the talk with your boys about da 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 da, da? And I'm like, you know, here's the thing. For 10 nights, we saw these riots play out on television. And you're going to tell me that that's going to engender goodwill toward the black community? Yeah. You know, when you see all these people looting and rioting and all of this kind of stuff. So you're going to be offended because a white woman clutches her purse and, and walks around, gives you a wide berth. Because what has she seen on her television for the last 10 nights? I mean, you know, that's just ingrained that upon people. You know, whether th that's true about our community or not, there's an element of our community that really, you know, uh, exploited that. And so those were black owned businesses. And you're right that people didn't have a place to 
uh, cash a paycheck. They didn't have a place to shop. It hurt black business owners. It hurt people in the community who had no place to shop. It turned into a food desert um, because now they had to go somewhere else because in their small town, there were no uh, places to shop. So absolutely, you're absolutely right on that point. Yeah, I think so. There, there are two things that do stand out about that. I mean, so one thing, one of the saving graces of the riots was that they were so integrated that I don't think people just blame black people for them. Like, if you look at the rioting in Portland, so one of my buddies is a lot of my buddies are white, actually, because I'm not racist. But one of them happens to be Caucasian. He was over at my house. We were watching a game or something. Some of the riot footage came on about a year and a half ago. And it was all white guys. This is probably Portland or Seattle. And he was looking at this. And another guy there who was black was like, look at all these white criminals. Where are their fathers? Just kind of making, joking about this. And the white guy was like, well, their fathers aren't there either. I mean, there are a ton of white criminals. Yeah. Like, and we looked it up. And I, I'd known this in passing before, but the white, quote unquote, illegitimacy rate is now around 40%. So when you look at fatherlessness, I mean, we always hear this is 72% in the black community. There's that movie 72 that spends three hours calling out black men. But I mean, it, it's almost identical for most other groups. I mean, for Hispanic males, it's 66%. Natives, I believe it's 62. I might be getting some of these a bit wrong. Um, all whites, it's uh, 37%, edging up toward 40%. So, I mean, I think when you look at those, Asians were the one outlier. Asians were like 12 to 17%, saving us all. But I mean, when you look at the rioters, I mean, very often in Minneapolis, you saw mobs that were 75% white burning a black business while chanting Black Lives Matter, which is one of the most right. surreal things I've ever seen. Right. So, I, so I do think there might be more hostility toward, you know, going to the city center or something than just toward blacks. And that actually, one thing that's interesting, if you really unpack these crime numbers like the idea of the animalistic black guy isn't really borne out. Crime in America is really, really localized. So the black and white crime rates are pretty similar if you remove the 30 largest high crime areas. Because a weird phenomenon is that black crime is really concentrated in these dense left-wing run mega cities. That's right. Detroit, Little Rock. I mean, now, a part of this also is the fact that whites out in the country also have pretty high crime rates. I mean, that's why people make redneck jokes and so on. But in Kentucky, outside of Louisville and Lexington, for example, the homicide rate for whites is five per 100,000, which is fairly high, but not anything exceptional. And for blacks, it's six to seven per 100,000, which is about the same. So a little, a little difference there, which could reflect past racism or anything else. But I would suspect that if you went around the country, if you went to Alabama, Georgia, you know, outside of Atlanta, you would find rates similar to those. And you'd find communities where both those groups think of their neighbors as sort of tough and they play some football together. But everyone is functional. Everyone has a garden out back. And then you would have certain mega city areas where you have both the antifa white guys and you have the hood, quote unquote, black guys. And that's where when if you stop policing you're going to have some real problems in the streets. And we recently made a decision in those exact areas to stop policing. And what you saw was the murder rate jump 50%. And I don't, I don't really think that surprises anyone with the brain. Yeah. Well, what is the velvet rope incident and how did that inspire your first book, hate crime hoax? 
Yeah, so my book, uh, Hate Crime Hoax, is, I mean, the title's pretty self-explanatory. I had become curious about why these incidents. Now, I always, I always do a disclaimer here. If somebody says they were sexually assaulted at a frat party or a white guy or a black guy says they got their ass kicked, excuse the language, outside the club when it closed by members of the other group, police should investigate that. That one probably happened. But with that said, I noticed not years ago that virtually every one of these high profile racial incidents discussed in the media, Tawana Brawley, if you remember that one, yeah. Duke Lacrosse, Jussie Smollett, Bubba Wallace, Covington Catholic, Erica Thomas, all these nooses found on college campuses, you know, Goucher College, you know, Keyan College with the death threats, Wisconsin Parkside with the nooses. We just saw this Duke volleyball thing where the claim was that multiple people in a stadium were chanting nigger every time a popular player tried to serve. Virtually every one of these turns out not to be true or there's something radically different from the original story, like the guy who drew the swastika was a Jewish art student making a point. So I wrote a book about this. I wanted to see how common this was. So I put together, with the help of research associate Jane Lingle, um, a list of, at the time, 409 just public, undeniable hate hoaxes concentrated, not entirely, but concentrated within one five-year period. So we can discuss what percentage of the total that is, but it is a large data set. And the one, the, the case that really started me in thinking about this in the first place was back home in Chicago as a graduate student, there was a series of actually like three or four of these cases. Velvet Rope Ultra Lounge was a bar in Chicago that actually some of my friends used to dance at. It was in Oak Park, which is right outside the city. It was popular with young bisexual college women, meaning with many, many other people. And, you know, had well-received gay nights as well as places with a lot of ferns and plants. And the bar burned to the ground just shockingly, like the local club was set ablaze. And there were these, when, when people went to the rubble to pay their respects and lay flowers and so on, these hateful gay slurs were found painted throughout what had been the building. Fag, excuse language, this sort of thing. Um, so the general, the general suspicion was, of course, that this had been homophobic violence. As I recall, the owner was gay. Uh, and this was, this is just one of several. I mean, maybe a year after this, at the University of Chicago, a student activist named Derek Kakaline claimed that he had been targeted because of his activism and an entire hacker group called the U Chicago Electronic Army had flooded his social media with death and anal rape threats. So this was the front page of the Trib. I believe it made the journal another huge story. Um, right up the road at Michigan Tech, there was a claim that a white engineering student had gone mad and said he was gonna shoot every black on campus. You know, the Wisconsin Parkside story I already mentioned came out about midway between uh, Velvet Ultra Lounge and Cockaline. This was nooses found on one of the prettier suburban Chicago campuses. So let's get back to Velvet Ultra Lounge. But what essentially happened was that the story turned out to be a complete fake. The owner's boy was arrested for drunk driving in another state and essentially told the police, if you let me out of this one, out of this Dewey, um, I've got a case for you. And he told this wild story of insurance fraud where his uh, friend owed some people money, which may not be the best thing to do in Chicago. I don't know all the details there, but he apparently set his own business on fire to collect a pretty sizable insurance payout. 
And when the insurance investigators, the actuaries followed up on that, they found out that that was indeed the case. Again, I, I have no idea who debts were to or whatever the case might be. But so that story turned out to be a complete fake. It was an extremely well-organized hoax. And the thing was, so did all of the other stories. The Kakaline thing was so disturbing that federal agents became involved. And what they found was that as far as I can tell, uh, Mr. Kakaline had simply messaged himself on one social media account on one computer over to another social media account on another computer. He was the only person involved. This is a matter of checking IP and MAC addresses. Mm -hmm. uh, the Michigan Tech thing, I'm not even going to name this guy who's gone on to just a normal, healthy career. But in that case, a student had, following a fraternity fight between blacks and whites, if I have that correct, had said, this is embarrassing. We're an engineering school. I'm going to shoot every black man I see on campus a big smile tomorrow. And a campus rival had clipped that so that it looked like on Twitter or Yik Yak, he had said, I'm going to shoot every black man I see tomorrow. And then it sent this to the campus police and then it sent this to the policing authorities. Uh, Parkside turned out not to be real. The person that was responsible was a black student activist who wanted to call attention to racism. So by the end of maybe 2014, and this all started like late in the year 2012, every single one of these cases that had been front page news in this one city of Chicago had turned out to be a fake. And I had become very, very interested in how often this happened. And my, my impression was, well, if I ever get a chance, if I ever get a sabbatical, if I make it into academia, I'm going to take a look at this. I'm going to write a short book and break down what the frequency of this is. And that's, that's what I ended up doing. If you're joining us just now, our guest this segment has been Dr. Wilford Riley, Associate Professor of Political Science at Kentucky State University and the author of Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, Hate Crime Hoax, as we've just discussed, and the $50 million question. $50 million question. How can our listeners find you and follow you online? Well, I'm, I'm extremely accessible. If, if you Google Wilfred Riley, uh, W-I-L-F-R-E-D-R-E-I-L-L-Y, You'll find uh, my website, quote unquote, all it's really just a page for me on the KSU website. You'll find my Twitter where I'm very active. I mean, the handle is at Will the Beast, but just Googling my name is the simplest way to find that. You'll find my Facebook and any associated pages. I think there's an Instagram linked. You'll find my articles, uh, Pod Chaser, all that stuff. So just uh, going out searching me online is probably the, uh, the simplest way to get in touch with the kid. And I'm at that level of very moderate fame where I will engage with you. Um, you know, if you're in Louisville or Chicago, there's an off chance I'll meet you for a drink. But I'll certainly uh, answer your email, that, that kind of thing. So reach out, get in touch. And you have a forthcoming book, I understand it, uh, The Alt-Wrongs, An American Case Against Racial Nationalism. So I hope you'll come back and discuss that with us. Yeah, alt-wrongs, I'm actually probably going to end up dropping online for free. Uh, the book is basically completed. The publication deal for that didn't end up working out. I do, however, have an upcoming book. Um, I don't see any reason to keep this in the dark. The, the publisher would probably prefer not to be named, but the book is going to be called something like 12 Lies Your Liberal Teacher Told You. And it's a response to the sort of, there was a, there was a block of Howard Zinn kind of writing in the 1960s and 70s when speaking as a black man, it might even have been needed, but it was 12 lies your teacher told you, lies the school system told you, 
you know, lies they told me as a black girl, but it was, it was all this sort of stuff like the Indians were uncivilized. And yes, a lot of that was dishonest, that jingoistic style of education. There was nothing in North America but jaguars and ambitions for the white man. But for the past 60 years, we've been listening to a kind of a different set of BS. So I, I unpack some of the things that we're, we're talking about now. Um, and some of them are actually fairly pro-black, like the idea of black history is just a series of failures. And I go through the obvious Madam C.J. Walker and Black Wall Street and so on. But some of them are more specifically just direct dishonesty, like the Red Scare didn't turn up any communists. Um, I've, I've been able to, with a historian, look through the Venona cables, which were declassified in 1995. And this is a little wonky, but I mean, everyone who was accused of being a Russian spy, with maybe eight exceptions, by McCarthy and those boys was a Russian spy. I mean, they're all mentioned by name and by code name, Alger Hiss and these people. So the idea that we were fighting communism or that there was a reason for the Vietnam War, all that stuff, I mean, that that is 100% justifiable. So I, I try to correct uh, another chapter is Native Americans weren't that peaceful. So, I mean, I actually just described the Aztecs and Incas and so on. These interesting, highly civilized people that would also eat you if they captured you in war. So, I mean, just the honest take on history is, is the goal of the book, not really right or left, but just this is what happened. If you're black, don't feel shame. If you're white, don't feel guilt. All of our ancestors are slaughtering each other until very recently. Women didn't get the right to vote till 1920. So, I mean, that that is what reality was. And it's important to understand that with no no blinders on. Well, thanks for giving us that scoop. So we hope to have you back on to talk about that. Take Love care, Will. Love to come back. Have a good one. And now, that part of the show where we bring in DK. Come on in. Hello. Hey. How's <laughs> how it going? Okay, how are you? Good, good. So, what did you take away from all that? Well, that was a great interview. I, I thought he would be a great guest, and he was. And he touched upon something I, I've touched upon on past shows, just uh, the homicide rate in inner cities. According to uh, what I found, the homicide rate has increased dramatically in the last few years. I think between 2019 and 2020, it increased almost 30%, which is more than double the rec the previous record of a homicide increase in a single year. And of course, um, the vast majority of the victims of this homicide rate have been Black. 55% yeah. of, of the people who who were murdered in 2020 were Black. So. It's a major problem. You're absolutely right. Any other takeaways for you? Anything else that stood out? Well, I wanted to point out that um, these this high homicide rate in inner city has, has definite consequences. For example, um, people are leaving these cities. Yeah. Uh, liberals are talking about what we need to do is more after-school programs, better school, better job opportunities. They're not pointing out that if there's not safety in the streets, then there's nothing else that can follow. There's no point of having better schools if your, your, your child doesn't feel safe being in school or going to school. There's no point of complaining about a lack of jobs in, in the city People don't want to open a business in the city because they know that their businesses will be looted. You were talking earlier about yeah. some of the, the uh, he's, I think you said Dallas, the, you can you can steal yeah. up to $1,200 yeah. 
without being, I mean, who can run a business like that when people can regularly <laughs> come in, take a thousand dollars out and just walk out the door and, you know, I'll see you tomorrow with another thousand. Exactly. I'll have, I'll have a pack by the doors to save you the trouble of walking through the store. Yeah. And it, it kills no. the city. I mean, I saw uh, Michelle Obama give an interview for a largely white audience about a month or so ago. And she was telling these white people that when her family moved to Chicago, white people moved out. And white people are still running, which was funny to me because now white people are running from cities like Chicago, but so are black people. They call this uh, reverse migration. Um, and people leave in cities like Chicago, Los Angeles, New York, and they're going to cities like Dallas and places in Florida, and they're going to Georgia. And it's these are all red states. So blacks are leaving these inner cities that are dominated by liberals who basically encourage these high crime wave with, uh, with a lot of anti-police propaganda, such as claiming that blacks are being hunted by the police. They passed these laws that make that increased the leniency for criminals, like we were talking earlier about Chicago have a mm -hmm. passing law that you can commit second degree murder without being detained or drug induced homicide without being detained. I mean, people are finding out that there's very little consequences to their actions. So of course, blacks are leaving these cities and they move into red states where they feel safer. And and I thought it's interesting that one of the major places they're going to is Georgia, which is supposedly such a racist state that Major League Baseball would not hold their all-star game there. If you remember that from like two years ago. Right, they right. And the voter Colorado ID. Yeah, the whole thing with because, Stacey Abrams. Yeah. Yeah. Stacey Abrams said, who's running for governor of Georgia, said maybe a few weeks ago that Georgia is one of the worst places in the country to live. Yeah, blacks are going there. I, mm -hmm. I found that ironic. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Thank you for joining us for another episode of African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. We hope you will follow us online uh, at brightnews.com. Also, uh, Bright News has a YouTube channel. And our podcast is also on Spotify. It's on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts. Uh, and all of the popular podcast uh, platforms. So until next time, I'm Marie. I'm DK. And we're African-American conservatives.